policy, energy management, and demand response in the energy transition taking place in Australia and around the world. I'm Luke Menzel, CEO of the Energy Efficiency Council, and I'm bringing you another special episode from the floor of the National Energy Efficiency Conference 2022, which uh, took place at the Pullman Melbourne on the park uh, several weeks ago. Now they're on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. This time it's a chat with our keynote speaker, Adrian Joyce, uh, Secretary General of Euroace and Campaign Director for Renovate Europe. I grabbed him fresh off the stage, uh, having delivered his keynote presentation, uh, unpacking what they've achieved there in Europe by really focusing uh, a political communications campaign on the incredible benefits of putting building retrofits as a core pillar of the broader transition to net zero emissions. Uh, I really enjoyed this chat. It was an absolute pleasure uh, hosting Adrian with us for those few days. I hope you enjoy it too. And uh, before I leave you to it, uh, big shout out to Energy Consumers Australia, whose support enabled us to capture this and a whole bunch of other really fascinating uh, conversations on the sidelines of the National Energy Efficiency Conference, uh, which will be rolling out uh, in various platforms over the coming weeks. So keep an eye out for those. But in the meantime, uh, it's my pleasure to uh, introduce my chat with Adrian Joyce. It's my great pleasure. Fresh off the stage here at the National Energy Efficiency Conference to welcome Adrian Joyce, uh, Director of Renovate Europe. Um, it's fantastic to have you with us, Adrian, all, all the way from Brussels. Delighted to be here. It's been a great experience. Uh, Renovate Europe is an organisation that, that I've long observed and, and admired, um, but uh, some in the audience won't be as familiar with your work as I am. Can you just give a brief overview of what Renovate Europe does and what it's trying to achieve? Yeah, Renovate Europe is a political communications campaign that we set up now 11 years ago. It's surprising how long it takes to get your message across. And it has a clear goal, which is to uh, advocate for the energy demand of the building stock in the EU to be reduced by 80% by 2050. And that in order to get there, we're going to have to increase the renovation rate to 3% per year from a low at the moment of 1% per year. And we're going to have to make sure that all those renovations are deep energy renovations that are delivering multiple benefits to the occupants of the buildings, to the owners of the buildings, and for society at large. And in fact, in the communications campaign, we have targeted very specifically the European political class within the European Parliament, the policymakers within the European Commission, and indeed the ministers at the uh, member state level. And the objective of the campaign to achieve that target is fully in line with the European Union's commitment to meet uh, the 2050 target of a, ca a carbon-neutral economy. In a sense, we've been fortunate that that climate target has come, uh, and we've been able to demonstrate that it's an impossibility to achieve it without having the building sector fully treated through energy renovation. Can you just unpack that? for me for a minute. Why, why are buildings so crucial? Because um, I, I get bailed up from time to time but for, but by people who tell me that because we're rapidly decarbonising the electricity se sector, it doesn't really matter how much uh, energy we use um, because it's all going to be green. Um, is that not the case, Adrian? It's a bit of a... We, we would call that in Australia a Dorothy Dixer because I know the answer, but I'm keen to hear you say it in, the, in your mellifluous uh, Irish accent. So it's not the case, Luke... <laughs> 
This, the, we will not achieve our targets unless we treat the building sector for the very simple reason that in, in the EU, buildings are consuming 40% of all the primary energy that's produced and as a result emitting 36% of our greenhouse gas emissions. So we have to make those buildings highly energy efficient and decarbonized by 2050 or we're cooked. We're literally cooked. Uh, but to just go a little deeper into that, um, when you're considering the overall energy system, and you're looking at how we produce energy today for providing energy services on the centralized model of a very large power station uh, with uh, transmission grids and distribution grids. You, we simply cannot, with renewable energy, achieve the same level of production. It's just not physically possible. So the very best uh, approach is to reduce the demand or the requirement for energy down as low as we can go so that low percentage that's left over can easily be uh, fed by renewables and in fact can then be done cost effectively maybe at a more local level than the current system is so it just makes sense uh, if there was no climate crisis it would still make sense to reduce energy demand in buildings so that we become a less wasteful society uh, i think that the situation here in australia is a, is a little bit different because we've got so much land and a relatively small population. So theoretically, it might be possible to completely oversize the network, spend billions and billions of more dollars than we, we need to, um, but it would mean a, a transition that is uh, much more expensive and it would take a lot longer as well. And those, those costs, as we know, for the energy system are ultimately borne by, by consumers. And so there's real serious equity issue associated with that in an Australian context? I mean, I fully agree. And on top of that, there's a resources issue because a lot of the, the renewables uh, sector need uh, precious earth materials and minerals, and uh, they're a rare resource. And is it wise to use up a rare resource in an extravagant manner, like oversizing a renewables-based uh, power grid? I don't think so, but that's my my view. I do know that energy efficiency that leads to energy savings is really a no regrets option because the other big risk with the, the, the policy pathway you've outlined, which is just green the supply, is you miss out or you risk missing out on all those multiple benefits of a more comfortable home, a healthier home, a home that will make you feel better uh, in your home or work environment. And missing out on those benefits is also, uh, I mean, for me, it's a no-brainer to go ahead and grab those benefits. It's interesting, maybe it's worth adding that here, that um, a lot of the early conversations around energy efficiency in buildings focused on the energy savings that you get and the cost reduction you get in your energy bills. Well, research that's being undertaken both in Victoria State here and in Ireland, my home country, demonstrates that actually the health benefits are much greater monetarily in financial terms than the benefits you get from lower energy bills. And, uh, uh, and in fact, in some cases, it looks like it's four times more benefit financially comes from the health benefits of renovation than you get from the energy bill reduction benefits. So if you just go for greening the supply, you miss out on the chance to reap all of those benefits too. And so that just doesn't look sensible to me. The, the, the cut through stat... Uh, that we always refer to is a uh, is a report from the Lancet from several years ago that found that on a per capita basis, 
uh, more Australians die of cold-related illnesses uh, than than Swedes, um, which uh, sort of sit, makes people sit up and, and take notice. And, and um, uh, we think that a lot of that is related to the very poor quality of the building stock. And there's two factors to that. There's just, you know, the, the, the fact that it's really hard to, to keep them warm and, and, and safe mm-hmm. and habitable. And also for, for people that are experiencing hardship, energy poverty, then they're, they're, they're more likely uh, not to, to use their heaters um, or to have access to an efficient heater. Um, and so they're, they're sitting there literally freezing to death. Um, which is which is something for for a country as wealthy as Australia um, is something that I, th- I think you know really should be a national priority dealing with those vulnerable households. The other thing, since I'm talking about vulnerable households, and and this came up in the conversation we had today with with Ken Morrison from the Property Council and uh, Cassandra Goldie uh, from ACOS, a, a fabulous panel we had here at the the conference, was you know the the need to um, bring uh, the most vulnerable in our community along for the journey. Um, a, a lot of the, the investments that are being made in buildings, um, they're, they're relatively accessible by wealthier uh, among, amongst us. Um, uh, when push comes to shove, they can make those investments. But, but, but renters, folk in, in social housing, have a, there's a real risk that they get left behind in these poor quality homes uh, uh, and re- facing higher and higher energy, energy bills. And so yet another imperative, I suppose, to drive us to focus on this, this agenda. Absolutely. And we have a focus on that in the European context as well, where energy poverty is a huge problem. And uh, heat stroke and heat waves is a huge problem. And actually, energy renovation can address both ends of that, that, that temperature spectrum. And we have been fortunate in the EU to have a great deal of public money flowing in uh, after the COVID pandemic to help recovery and resilience. And we will be in a position, I think, to actually grant aid all of those vulnerable homes so that at no cost to the occupant uh, of the worst performing buildings they will get a a deep energy uh, retrofit or renovation allowing them with dignity to come out of energy poverty uh, in say a five to ten year time time frame i don't know if you have that luxury here in australia because i i haven't learned enough about the um, the funding options that are available uh, but it is true that I think you're going to have to find a funding mechanism for that very vulnerable segment and the working poor who really are trapped and who, if given this upgrade in their buildings, would regain dignity, well-being, feel better in themselves, better their lives, because they would probably be able to find a better job, be, be, become more stable in their day-to-day life, because their living environment is uh, adequate and decent. And that's such an important challenge to, to, to face. Indeed, the, 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 the other income brackets need different kinds of financial packages. And so having schemes available in Australia that are ambitious schemes that ask for a high level of energy improvement in the building, but that have flexible financing where blending of different sources is possible. If you can devise this, I think that's going to be a very good route for helping to uh, unleash in Australia as well a renovation wave. One of the, the contributions you've made with us uh, over the last couple of days, 
Adrian is um, is encouraging the advocates that are here with us at the at the conference um, and that you've been meeting inside meetings to think in a, in a really granular fashion about the different types of finance that are available to different cohorts. Because as you say, there are there are there are those in the community who there's no there's no way in the world that they would be able to do this without some support from government in some way, shape or form. At the other end of the spectrum, you've got folks that it would not make any sense and be a poor use of taxpayer dollars to support them to make these upgrades because they've absolutely got the wherewithal. But in between, you've got, you've got this, this cohort who, you know, technically, you know, uh, you know are in relatively way well-paid jobs, um, they would have the mean to ser- means to service the loan, but you know it's, they they might they might need some particular finance products that are that are well suited to the task to make it make it possible for them to engage with the, a deep retrofit, right? Yeah, and th- that's that cohort. They need a very attractive financial package or a financial offer uh, that they can take up. And uh, I mean, for that, let it, let it, let's say um, property owning, just getting by bracket. I think there are two possibilities. One, if you can find a public source that's an, a zero coupon loan so that there's no payments to be made off during the term of the loan, only at the end of the loan or at sale or transfer of the property, then those um, households can be given the energy uh, renovation at no cost to themselves, but they then have a, a, a commitment to pay back at a, a future date. Uh, and in the second type of loan, uh, a loan where there is a preferen- preferential interest rate, for example, or a top-up to an existing mortgage at a preferential rate that is improved as their level of ambition in terms of ener- re- energy renovation increases. So they get a- even better uh, conditions if they go further with the energy renovation. And what has been discovered in, in the EU with the Energy Efficiency Financial Institutions Group research is that that cohort end up being uh, twice as secure uh, for the banks, because the default rate for that type of loan is 50% of the default rate for similar loans given for other purposes. So actually, it becomes a really secure investment or product for banks to consider. And in the EU, we're fortunate we have a green mortgage scheme that's underway that has its own labeling. So the consumer knows when they sign up for the loan that this product that they're buying, this, this loan, has been certified and has been checked and and complies with certain uh, criteria. So they can have trust and confidence that this is going to do the job for them. And that's really what you guys look like you need here. Uh, Or or more of it. I think maybe there's one or two demonstration projects or pilots in in place. There's some early moves, but we certainly need to scale up that effort. And uh, hopefully next time you visit us in Australia, Adrian, I'll have good news to report on that front. Hey team, uh, I don't have a conference to promote, at least for a little while now, so uh, I have to turn my attention to other stuff the EEC is up to. Uh, luckily there's plenty and uh, why don't we chat about training? Uh, we've just released our latest training and professional development calendar, looking ahead to FY23. I know it's scary, isn't it? We've got masterclasses in energy management and metering. Uh, we've got new ENMS advisor training, measurement verification training, energy auditing to the Australian Standards, certified energy manager training, and uh, a masterclass on the fundamentals of gas efficiency and electrification. All the great training and all pretty on point given the energy apocalypse that we're all working our way through. Uh, there's never been a better time to. 
support energy intensive businesses on their journey to net zero emissions through smart energy management. So um, there's plenty of stuff to uh, to engage with in terms of the EC's training program. Uh, if you want to learn more about all of that, hop on to ec.org.au forward slash training and you can check out the calendar. Now back to the show. Um, well, I, I think we've established the case that we're in furious agreement that building upgrades are, are really important <laughs> to this journey. So let's turn to turn back to Renovate Europe. Now, you, I think you described it as a, a political communications campaign, and I'd, I'd like to be really specific about what you what you mean by that, because um, uh, it's become clear, as I've, I've heard you explaining the, the role of Renovate Europe, it, it is not to create, you know... Uh, lengthy tomes of policy recommendations. Uh, it's not to do research or analysis um, on on these on these topics. You've got a, a very a specific theory of change, really, don't you? Yeah, we do. And, and actually, what we've been doing over the years is what we've done is we've set that objective I described earlier of an eighty percent reduction by twenty fifty. And in behind that, we've under we've commissioned research to uh, find out what are the multiple benefits that will flow from that. And we've then been promoting the positive message of what occurs when you uh, undertake energy renovation specifically to the co-legislators of the European Union. So they are the elected members of the European Parliament and they are the uh, ministers in the council who are the co-legislators that together negotiate all the laws at European level. And before we... uh, And so by getting the... Convincing... Convincing is a bit strong, but by opening their eyes to the benefits and the need for energy renovation, we actually um, open the door for uh, new policy and more ambitious policy to, 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 to come in to play in the market. So we have been very focused. I think we've been very fortunate in the timings. We've had two, two elections to the European Parliament in the time we've been uh, uh, operating as a campaign. And we've been able to sign up in the first mandate 102 members of the parliament as champions of our cause. And in the second, 34. But COVID has really interfered with our capacity to sign up more. And then they have been carrying our message into their work and into their committees. And even when there isn't a building-specific uh, legislation going through the parliament parliamentary process, they're carrying our message and they're looking out for opportunities for energy efficiency to be included in the in those uh, flanking, let's call them flanking uh, pieces of legislation. So yeah, we, we, we try to be very targeted and we, we've always uh, interrogated ourselves as to whether or not our message is being received the way we wish it to be received. So we've spent quite a bit of effort understanding the political narratives that each of the political groups in the European Parliament uh, espouse so that our message is tailored to the person that we're speaking to. And we have literally doorstepped uh, members of Parliament and we have been uh, maybe a little bit of a nuisance from time to time sitting in the corridors. It's hard to believe yes. um, your persona um, is, so, is so gentle, but um, you're doorstopping people in the, in the European Parliament, are you? I'm very diplomatic. And, uh, <laughs> I think as I told you over lunch, I have a 30-second uh, lift pitch in my back pocket, so if I find myself with a person we've not spoken to before in 30 seconds, I can pitch the message. So this is the kind of uh, campaigning or advocacy work that... Uh, we're supposed to be good at. You use the word we, and I know you have a small team, mm-hmm. but really it's you 
um, as the as the kind of the pointy end of the campaign, having one-on-one conversations. And so, you know, you've got you've got those arguments lined up. It's really helpful that there are so many benefits of benefits of energy efficiency. You've got a you've, you've effectively got a menu to choose from depending on who you're talking to, and it's not disingenuous, right? It is just it is just you know placing an emphasis on the things that are going to resonate, and everything everything else becomes a co-benefit um, over and above what that per, that particular politician is. And just to in. emphasize, I mean, the multiple benefits that we promote are based on on solid scientific research and good solid methodologies that have uh, demonstrated that these benefits actually occur so it's not like we're fabulating uh, i would never do that uh, but indeed we are uh, choosy about which which ones we emphasize in a conversation because you, you have to appeal to the person on the other side of the the table to you or you just don't get their support and uh, actually yeah we've we've managed it over the years and what's compelling for me about this model is that um in our space, in our community, there are no shortage of good ideas. There are no shortage of smart people, whether within governments or you know outside of governments, in, in industry, professional associations, think tanks. They've, we've got all the ideas. We've spent, we've spent decades coming up with you know incre- incredible pathways for how to activate the demand side. Uh, the trick it's not we don't need more ideas really. <laughs> We need um, uh, what I think uh, uh, when we were talking to, to Lynn Gallagher, um, she described what you were creating as an authorising in- environment. Mm-hmm. So the political support, because, the, because, because if you can win the hearts and, and minds of uh, politicians in the, in the European Union or indeed anywhere around the world, and they say, yeah, that's, that's a fantastic idea, that is worth our time and attention and, and, and money and uh, and that they put their departments to work, which allows the experts to work with all the experts outside of government to make it happen. And that's the that's the critical piece that is missing. It's always been missing. And I mean, you're aware of this. I think that there's there's other really um, exciting work that's come out of uh, uh, come out of the IEA over the last couple of years. Um, the global. Commission, I think it was on yep. on energy efficiency, which um, chaired uh, by the Irish minister. That's right. Himself, yeah, and um, I think, and of course, our, our friend Brian Motherway was yes. uh, instrumental in the creation of that, um, with a with almost a similar insight, mm-hmm. which is that you have you have to raise the profile of this at the political level mm-hmm. to have any any chance of driving the kind of transformational change we know we need to see from the demand side. So um, that's why I'm really excited about this. There's one other thing we, we, we did that maybe is a little more lightweight uh, but, but very attractive in terms of a communication campaign is, let's face it, politicians are vain. They like to see their face uh, in media. So we have, over the years, had several photo opportunities that we have fun photo opportunities with you know bright orange t-shirts, uh, cut out frames that they're holding with the message on the frame and simple things that can be you know, kind of done uh, on the kitchen table but actually when then ex- then used in our communications work gives a platform to to the politicians they're delighted they retweet they, they put it up on their website there's a photograph on their wall um, and uh, you know think about the simple way of just appealing to the person not just to their professional interest or their political interest and you'd be surprised how they come along and uh, these simple tactics that basic tactics work even in our technologically advanced age and I think it's still worth uh, maybe I'm a bit old fashioned but I do still think it's worth that that touchy feely part you know press the flesh take a photograph print the photograph don't just digitalize it and uh, give it back to them get them to put it on their wall 
So simple things. Well, look, we, we've sort of established the case for, for building upgrades. You've talked about the methodology that you've, you've taken uh, since Renovate Europe was founded in 2011. Let's talk about some of the results. So um, uh, when I introduced you this morning, I, I think I described Renovate Europe as an overnight success a decade in the making. So these, this sort of careful work, the pressing of the flesh, um, the direct engagement with politicians, um, uh, you had established by the time we got to the 2020 the year of pandemic, that this was a space that was worth investing in. Uh, and so uh, when that crisis hit and um, the, the minds of the political class turned to stimulus, mm-hmm. um, obviously the, the EU also has a, a very significant commitment to a, an, an energy and a climate transition. And so um, looking at stimulus options that also had that, that, that double dividend of supporting that transition to net zero emissions by 2050, um, that was top of mind. And so um, when you knocked on their door and said, well, uh, you know, what about fixing the buildings? That wasn't a new idea. That was one that was established. And, that, and, you, and, and the conversation was, a, was not about if, it was more about how much. Uh, is that a fair characterization? That is a fair characterization. And actually, I would point to two tangible bene- uh, successes we've had in the 10 years. Um, I didn't say it at the outset, but the impetus to start the campaign was the fact that when the Buildings Directive in Europe, which is the peak law for uh, buildings in Europe, was first revised in 2010, uh, renovation was hardly mentioned at all. So we established the campaign in 2011 to put renovation on the map. By the time the next revision came in 2018, renovation became center stage in the directive with the requirement for member states to have long-term renovation strategies to transform their building stock to highly energy efficient and decarbonized buildings. That was, I could say, a direct result of the lobbying and advocacy work we had undertaken in those eight years. But indeed, when COVID struck and Europe decided to have a recovery and resilience facility of hundreds of billions of euro, we again advocated for buildings to be given a central place in that work. And when the guidance was sent by the European Commission to the member states for how they should plan to spend the recovery money that's being given to them, there was what was called a renovation flagship included uh, among, I think, six flagships. So this was a tangible uh, success once again. And when we examined those um, renovation, or, uh, sorry, recovery and resilience plans, we found that uh, across the 27 member states, 65 billion euro has been pledged to energy renovation of buildings in the period from now to 2025. So quite a short period, three years, about 20 billion a year. It's actually not enough, but it's actually quite a reasonable amount when you consider it's public funding. I'd take it, Adrian. You'd take it, you? <laughs> <laughs> But so we're very happy to be able to point to these uh, tangible successes uh, in addition to the fun we've had all along uh, the, the road thinking up of little mini campaigns and ways to communicate and ways to entice and attract the political support that we've been looking for. Yeah, I suppose the, the, the thing to say, and it, it's really quite topical, mm-hmm. is that uh, we are facing a new crisis um, as we speak. Um, the war of Ukraine, um, an, a, a, an incredible human tragedy, but it's having uh, flow-on effects for energy markets around the world and serious Energy security issues are being created in, in Europe in particular. Um, uh, and uh, the, another uh, result of all the work that you've done um, and that we've observed from afar in Australia is, uh, is that the, the response is, is very sensibly putting energy efficiency, 
particularly in buildings, front and centre in terms of the the response uh, from an energy security perspective, um, which absent your effort and the effort of your partners, I, I, I suspect, wouldn't have happened. Can you can you ex- explain how that's playing out at the moment? I know it's a very live topic. It's a very live topic. It's a true human tragedy. It's incomprehensible to right-thinking people around the world. And actually, it's painful for us to see the, the problems that energy security is now um, imposing on the European population. In 20, because in 2015, the Renovate Europe campaign produced a video highlighting that the European Union was 53% at that time dependent on energy imports, largely from authoritarian states around the world, at a rate of about 400 billion euro per year being flowing out of Europe into the coffers of those regimes. And uh, nothing was done about it at that time. And just as Russia invaded Ukraine, our dependence had gone up to 61%. It hadn't gone the other way. So it's painful for us to, to, to realize we were seven years ahead of, the, of, the, of this crisis and, and not listened to. Nevertheless, the day has come, and indeed the, the, what's now called the EU Energy Savings Plan has been published just last week. I haven't had time to analyze it fully, but I can say that in that plan, uh, energy savings and, and renovation of buildings gets the first or top mention. And that would not have happened... Uh, without a, a very concerted effort over the last two months where the Renovate Europe uh, campaign itself and the partners that support us were in the cabinet offices of 10 of the commissioners explaining to them, because they had never thought about it before, why buildings are really important. And uh, they listened. They actually listened. And they listened indeed because our arguments are mature. We've been rolling them out over these 10 years. We've been reviewing them. We've been making sure they remain topical. And I think we have become, I suppose, professional at doing this advocacy work. And, uh, yeah, it's terrible that it's this stimulus that gives us the opportunity. Uh, But we won't turn it away, of course. Well, I want to close by asking what's next. Like, where do you see this campaign going? What is the the trajectory that you're on? Uh, Is is it if you've effectively got a... A business model, if I can put it that way, that you just need to keep cranking, cranking the, the widget, or are there new things on the horizon for Renovate Europe? There are new things on the horizon. Uh, I mean, the kind of work we've been doing to open that door remains valid until the point where the uh, legislative and regulatory framework in Europe is truly ambitious and coherent across uh, all the different legislations that affect buildings. So that work will go on. I think that nitty-gritty work will go on for another three to five years. Beyond that, I, I, I think we're going to see, and this is me going out on a limb, but I do think we're going to see a, a move towards a deeper conversation on decarbonization of the building stock, both operational and embodied uh, carbon. And uh, with a time horizon around 2028 for the next review of the buildings directive, I, I suspect if the partners ask for it, because the campaign office will not impose on the partners, then I think uh, the, the, the link between energy efficiency and decarbonization, and indeed why not the link between energy efficiency and renewables, which are the ideal twins for the energy transition, may become more uh, important for the campaign messaging. But we will still be looking for driving down the energy demand, 
being less wasteful with energy because every electron is precious and we shouldn't be wasting any electrons no matter what, where they've come from. Well, and that, that sophistication, I suppose, of the, the, the relationship between supply and demand in terms of operational energy use, but also you're, you're pointing to the supply chain yeah. and the, the emissions um, associated with the production of building products. And, of course, there's building new buildings, but to fix the buildings, we need building products as well. We need to think about the carbon intensity of those and where the energy is coming from to produce those and also how much materials we're using. There's a materials efficiency piece that we need to be very mindful of. It's a very integrated story. And I suppose, uh, you know, it, it, makes, it makes a lot of sense um, that... Uh, that you would focus in the first instance on a very simple message, um, and, that, and that's, the, the, that's the immediate challenge. But, also, but what you're pointing to is that if we can, if we can lock that in, you, you can then move to some of these more complex areas. And indeed, listening to you reminds me that um, uh, there's another area I think we might end up talking more about, and that's uh, skills, workforce, and how to make the renovation sector much more attractive to young and female workers because the, there's a large pool I think we could draw on and that would be, be, be through arguments around digitalization or off-site construction techniques for renovation that can also improve the quality, reduce the waste streams and resource use for the materials needed for the renovation wave. So this is not a story that's over. This is, a, this is the journey so far and uh, we, we have a long way to go. We're happy that uh, we're an inspiration to Australia, hopefully, for your journey. And we're going to be here to help you along that way if we can. We really appreciate the partnership, Adrian, and for also coming and joining us here at the National Energy Efficiency Conference and taking the time to sit down with me. So, so thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks. Okay. Well, that wraps up this special episode of First Fuel. If you have comments, you can find us on Twitter. Adrian is at Adrian underscore Joyce, and my handle is at... Luke Menzel. And to keep up to date on the latest in energy efficiency, energy management and demand response, you can find the Energy Efficiency Council at eec.org.au. Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing to First Fuel in your podcast app of choice. And to learn more about the show, visit eec.org.au forward slash podcast. But for now, it's uh, goodbye from us. We'll catch you soon.